0: welcome to curious with josh peck start the show welcome back to the curious podcast my name is josh peck and i'm your host and your name is listener and that's what you do you listen what a what a day, what a life, what a week. It's the summer we're all enjoying, I assume. We've all got tans and we're getting an influx of that good feeling vitamin D that's overall helping our mood, hopefully, right? Are we all feeling just slightly better than we do in the dog days of mid-February or not? Or maybe the fact that you don't want to go outside because it's too hot forces you into the shadows of your one-bedroom apartment with the same carpet that was there in 1988 when some guy named Ted lived in that apartment and probably did a lot of cocaine. But that's all right. Right? Whether you're going outside during the summer or staying inside, I support it all. You don't have to be basic. You don't have to... You know, do outdoor activities. I don't know. You know, I don't drink. And thus, I found myself to become a bit of a square. I tell you, But fuck, man. You know, I have so many family and friends whose like, entire directive and like their goal in life is to socialize. It's weird. Now, Granted, and I'm not shitting on it, like they have like sort of like set schedules, nine to fives, you know, they enjoy their work. Maybe it's not their great passion, which is totally actually incredibly great. And then it just becomes like, let's just spend our entire weekends and any time off like cracking some brewskis and playing volleyball and a myriad of other outdoor or indoor sports. And if that's your thing, that's great. It's just, you know, the allure is lost on me. I just don't like people that much. I, mean, I like my wife, even though, you know, she kind of got annoyed with me this morning, but that's just being married. Um, I like my wife, and I like my kid, and I like people. I do. But I'm not, I just, these marathon socializing sessions have... Just no allure for me. I'll tell you what, I don't like doing anything that long. I don't want a five-hour massage. I don't want to make sweet love for five hours long. I just don't. There is rarely anything that is better after the second hour. Right? Like, what is better than... What is better after the second hour? Uh, Schindler's List? Uh, Sleep? Uh... Uh, a plane ride assuming you haven't crashed because that means you haven't I don't know not much I I wouldn't want to sit down at a meal for over two hours even if it was the best food ever speaking of which and I'm not cutting to the interview quite yet because I still want to rant a bit but we've got Peter Meehan on the podcast today who's a brilliant writer um the editor of the LA Times food section, uh, former partner of superstar, super famous chef Dave Chang. Just what an incredible guy. It was such a joy talking to him, and I, I so appreciate it. But anyway, you know, back to me because what's important in life? Am I wrong? Um, what do we got, baby? I'm trying to think. Big fight last night. Manny Pacquiao wound up uh, beating Keith Thurman, an undefeated champion at 30, year, 30 years old. And Manny Pacquiao at 40 kicked his ass. Unbelievable. I love boxing. I love any sort of fight sport because, and the allure isn't, is sort of lost on certain people. I don't know if it's the violence to it or what have you. When in reality, it's just it's just the sweet science of boxing. It's all it's geometry, baby. It's the fucking angles. Um, I realize the reason I like it so much is that every fight, especially when you're watching like guys like Pacquiao, or if it's UFC like John Jones or 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 Amanda Nunes, like these people, they only fight twice a year, three times at most. So every single match is. Like the World Series. It's not a fucking mid-season game, you know, uh, the the Memphis Grizzlies against the fucking, you know, the Toledo Jackrabbits. Like, it's not like some game that really doesn't matter because neither team's in playoff contention yet. It matters. It all fucking matters. Like, the next 12 rounds or 25 minutes is going to dramatically decide the next six months to a year of that person's career. and or end it. You know what I'm saying? Like, when Conor McGregor went to fight Khabib, he had just lost. To, well, he, I mean, he had lost once before he had an illustrious career, but he lost in the UFC, then he lost to fucking Floyd Mayweather, So, this was an important match. It was important that he won this thing, and he didn't, and thus he retired. Of course, he could have kept fighting. I mean, the guy's like, you know, a massive star. But nevertheless, he's like, how many more losses can I sort of accrue before people stop wanting to tune in? One, two, max... I mean, if he had lost one or two more times, I mean, we would have been like, uh, Connor, maybe you should be, you know, fighting at the Marriott near the airport. Because, you know, you've sort of lost your luster. But fighting, man, it's a very exciting sport. My buddy Justin Fortune from Fortune's boxing gym is Pacquiao's strength and conditioning coach. And he was there, and it was just fun to watch my buddy there in a very famous fighter's corner um but good for you manny pacquiao wow being 40 looks good i welcome death <laughs> it's funny i was listening to my friend Br- Brittany ferlin on the tiger belly podcast and she was you know sort of lamenting about how her anxiety plagues her and Kalila, bobby's girlfriend on the tiger belly podcast they were they were sort of sharing stories about how their anxiety is so debilitating at times and that they fear like death and what's going to happen. And oh God, where do you go? And I feel so sick. And, and every pain, you know, has got to be like life threatening. It can't just be like a simple pain. And I, I think a lot of people are, have a fear of death and they, they become hypochondriacs and they're, you know, the small, you know, a hangnail is just like a, a preview of a coming infection that will ravage their body and, and bring them to, you know, their knees. But I don't know. I don't I don't fear any of that. I really don't. And, like, I got a good life. I got a wife and a kid and all that stuff. And I want to be around for them 100%. This goes without saying. But, you know, if it was completely out of my control and, you know, my ticket got punched... Fucking so be it. I don't know. I mean, wh- wh- what am I going to do? Am I going to lament and worry about it? I mean, life is cool, but, like, I'm not dying to stick around once I've, like, you know, properly raised my kid and done all the right things I need to do. If I'm 80, I'm ready to go. I might overdose at 70 while eating White Castle, and that, to me, would not be a bad goodbye. I mean, these people that want to live to 120, 150, for what? More traffic? More fucking yoga classes and brunch. How much rose can one drink? It's fucking ridiculous. Thanksgiving food is great, but after I'm, you know, I've had my 90th Thanksgiving meal, I think I might be ready to be done. I think you can only eat so much fucking green bean casserole. And I will, I love my son madly, and I'm sure I'll love his kids. But once I'm a great-grandfather three, four times removed, I'm not going to connect with these kids. Who is this? It's my great-great-grandson. I think his name is Albert. I'm not sure. I barely know the kid. I barely know his parents. I don't know. And it's not like coming from a depressive state, it's just going like, yeah, whatever this video game is that we're playing, whatever matrix we all seem to find ourselves in is like, it's a fun game, but kind of like glad that there's an expiration, like that you kind of play it the best you can for hopefully a handful of years, uh, you know, seven or eight decades, and then you level up or level down or level nothing. And that's fine too. I don't know. Listen, I'm not trying to prognosticate. I believe that's a word of predicting the future. I'm pretty sure I'm really trying to get better with vocabulary words. Or prophletize, another good one, which means me trying to get you to subscribe to the way in which I think. Maybe I'll just give you guys vocabulary words each week. Oh, I wanted to mention podcasts that I really love, and I I seem to do that. Every episode, whether I make a point of doing it or not, I'll reference something. But my buddy Rick Glassman has a great podcast um, that I really enjoyed, and he also reminded me the other day that I was going to mention it on my podcast. So, Rick, here you go, buddy. Uh, his podcast is called "Take Your Shoes Off." I uh, I believe, I believe that's what it's called. But let me just double check because I, I don't want Rick to be mad at me. But anyway, he's an incredibly funny, smart guy. I've had I. Interviewed him, take your shoes off, I was right. I interviewed him for my pod, which it's going to come out in a, in a month or two, and he's just an incredibly funny, smart guy. His pod is great, especially with the one with Bobby Lee, who I referenced earlier, um, but I, I loved his first podcast with one of his best friends and uh, a great Hollywood typewriter. So enjoy, go listen to Take Your Shoes Off, and that is the end of your free plug, Rick Glassman. So figure out a way to repay me. You know, I'm talking to nice coffee, maybe a yoga class. I don't know. But I'm just saying, start thinking. (laughs) Uh, On today's podcast, Peter Meehan. I already kind of uh, talked him up earlier, so I might not do that as much. But again, brilliant writer, works for the LA Times. Such a nice guy. So lovely of him to sit down with me. And uh, we actually got to sit down in sort of the... The, the core of the LA Times building near LAX airport. And it was very cool and exciting and felt important. And like I was on the set of All the President's Men. Um, so thanks, Peter, for that experience. And uh, hope you guys enjoy. Yeah, that's good. I got a stand, too, if you would. Or are you good holding? I w- I'll take a stand. Yeah, a little stand action. Come on.
1: Did sure. you guys do a Jewish wedding, or uh, what, how did you approach the uh, the, the wedding arrangement?
0: So, um, my wife's, like, her family, you know, my wife went to 12 years of Catholic school, and here, this sorry, is... Sorry good. for her loss. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, she went to 12 years of, of, of Catholic school. I grew up, like, culturally Jewish, right. like most yeah, my wife New is York like, Jews.
1: You know, it says, like, her grandmother lives up in Santa Barbara. Like, they are, like, four generations of atheist Jews, you know?
0: Right. So, and I feel like that seems to be more the norm than ever. Yeah, that's great. Boom. Um, And so, when we were getting married, we were like, we're not going to have a religious ceremony because for obvious reasons. Right. So what do we do? And her dad actually was a former quarterback for the Jets for 10 years. So they have a really good family friend who's like a quarterback. He plays for the Lions and he's just been, you know, part of the family for 20 years. His, his name's Matt Castle. And we were yeah. like, why don't we have Matt marry us? That's So great. I, that's, it was perfect. That's great. Yeah. But then, you know, you always have the conversations like – When the kid was born it was a boy and i'm like well do we have a brace and she's like well do we have a baptism and i'm like you know what let's just
1: let's just just not put a name on this thing yeah there's a guy like the moyle who does like apparently who's like the the moyle to the stars in brooklyn drives a lamborghini and it has some sort of moyle themed license plate that i cannot remember right now but i feel like that is you know just wild.
0: That's amazing.
1: Like, like, you know, 10 brises a day or something, like, speeds up, you know.
0: It's a brilliant Like racket. Harvey
1: Keitel in, like, Pulp Fiction, you know. He's just the wolf, you know.
0: Well, you think about, uh, you know, professions that are sort of going, like, the way of the dodo. Yeah. Like, and yet, like, and you would think a Moyle. It's not necessarily growing in popularity. Right. But there's just as many boys being born, if not more. Right. So they're in need. Yeah. You know? <laughs> the the guy that did My Buddy's Sons in L.A., it too, is like... He's the dude, like you literally get a pamphlet if you're a Jew when you go to your OB and you find out you're having a boy with his picture on it being like, this is your guy. Yeah. You know, everybody's got an angle, I guess. 800 bucks. Eight hundred. So yeah, you knock out five of those a day. Yeah. You're doing okay. Yeah. That's, it's probably cash. Yeah. Yeah. I doubt they're miles doing a lot of reporting to the government. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Right. Um, so I feel very cool that we're sitting here like in the heart of the LA times.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a crazy, it's a crazy place and a crazy time and a crazy setting because for years the LA times was kind of gutted by bad management, bad Mm. ownership, um, huge layoffs, a lack of resources. You know, my colleagues talk about like expensing, Meals and valet parking expenses, just because like the idea of going through the expense system was like too onerous. and And the paper was bought last year by Dr. Patrick Soon Zhang. And he committed to it in a kind of crazy way for today's media environment. Um, he put us in this new office. There's tons of new resources. I think the newsroom has grown in staff by 33% in the last year. Wow. So it's gone from being a place where people are like, when is the ship going to capsize to a place where, you know, there's 15 new people starting every week, you know, coming on to do what we do. So it's, I, th- I think it's a very different, more humming energy in the space than it was, you know, a, even a year ago.
0: And what, what was leading to, uh, you know, when it was under prior management, to the challenges? Was it just that print media itself was going through so many challenges or was it the LA Times specifically? No,
1: I mean, I think, you know, print advertising has been in a decline for a long time. You know, uh, newspaper readership is is not what it once was. And then I think many legacy media businesses, you know, didn't pivot to digital, right. uh, you know, in the right way. And I think that specifically, if you look back at Trunk, there's a great john oliver episode about tronc the company the tribune company became tronc and about their management of newspapers Mm. and they were they were kind of like corporate raiders they would kind of go into a place break it up into pieces like see what assets they could sell or work for money it was not you know i think that journalism newspapers the fourth estate requires a certain commitment to ethics and idealism as well as to like you know commerce and business, but, but Tribune Company had way too little of the former mm. and, and not a particularly good strategy for the latter. I think they were looking to take money off the table when they could not looking to like building, grow as a sustaining business.
0: Right. And now, I I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but the New York Times, the digital... I mean, it's through the roof of...
1: Yeah, I mean, the the New York Times has... And, I, you know, I worked at the New York Times a decade ago um, and saw them struggling and fumbling and trying to figure out how to deal with, like, the web and how do we interact with it and what goes online and what doesn't, you know, what's behind a paywall. And I think if you look at... If you look at what they've done over – as a 10-year effort, that's where the success is happening from, you know, because it seems like – you know, it seems like they put out their cooking app, which is a great app. um, And it's like, oh, my God, they made a great app, and now it's really successful. And I think that, you know, part of the perspective I have from running a magazine previously is that, like, nothing – happens on that short of a timeline. That's years of work in the making of of getting that database together, of figuring out the visual presentation of their recipes, of going through iterations of development and design, and then, you know, having a marketing system in place to get that out to, to readers and consumers. And I guess that's, you know, I think... I mean, I like to play the role of, like, drunken editor guy who likes weird cartoons, and yeah. that's definitely part of my personality, but I think the other thing is that I'm very... Serious about and interested in the business of media, and I'm excited because we have resources and intention behind this business that we can we can start to turn the the LA Times, you know, business franchise around, as well as you know, trying to produce the best editorial we can.
0: Right. No, it's it's funny you say that because I think about those all the great cooking stuff from the New York Times, and I, every picture that comes up looks like. It was taken on a rainy afternoon on a found wood table in Rhinebeck, <laughs> like, and and to me, I just it's it's so inherently associated with the New York Times, and I, m- me as the sort of neophyte reader, I never think that like wow, there was probably like so many brainstorming sessions that went into the exact aesthetic of that photo. Right. It's, right.
1: You know, I mean, I I believe strongly in. I believe in data, and I don't believe in data. I never want data to tell me what story to do, what story not to do. I never, but but I also want to, and I think it's like just part of encouraging our team um, at Food to engage with numbers, not in a way that says, "Oh, if you do like a, a shit post about something and it does really well, well, we should just write, you know, right. we should just like TMZ our news." No, like that's not that's not the move. But it's like if somebody writes something. And it's resonant and it's a little bit, you know, and, you know, you can learn from that and you can, and you can look at why you can look at the art, you can look at the length, you can look at the lead in, you know, there's all these aspects of why stories might work. And I think that, you know, treating the making of news as like a ever evolving puzzle, right. it, you know, it, it adds a little game to it.
0: Is there a way like, you know, I think about it and and I guess like the times, is slightly synonymous with like a certain. I don't know if ideology is the right word, but a, a certain view on politics. And and it seems it seems as though every publication sort of has to take. A, I don't know if a stand is the right word, but have their leaning. It's like is there any way to make a truly bipartisan uh, publication or not really? Right, you kind of gotta you know there, have there, an opinion. There's a there's a writer
1: whose name is eluding me right now. um he writes about media and I remember a few years ago he started slagging. I think it was like particularly like kind of news networks for uh, the view from nowhere. Mm. And I think that there is an idea sometimes that you should have a quote from this side and a quote from that side. And that that somehow creates a more balanced presentation of the news. Um, I don't ascribe to that in all cases. I think that there are issues where there are multiple viewpoints that need to be considered and represented in the reporting of the news. And fortunately I'm a food writer, not a news reporter. So this is my opinion, not the opinion of the Los Angeles times, sure. but I think that, you know, frequently, and I think that like, given everything that's like happening in our country right now, like, and, and you know, the idea of entertaining some notions or discussions as having a uh, uh, serious viewpoints to consider on both sides seems problematic to me Mm. like you know i mean i think about you know the idea that there were there were fine people on both sides of that rally as like a point where it's like is that a viewpoint we're indulging or is that something that we should be calling out yeah
0: is that fucking crazy talk i just
1: feel like you know if we can't all agree that nazis are bad then there's really that's the discussion we need to be having not you know right just like let's let's you know Let's just start with Nazis. No, no Nazis, and then we can we can get Build we, from there. Yeah, we can get into the details afterwards. But you know, I just I don't know. Like growing up in, I just I don't know. I always thought that we were all against the Nazis, but but apparently, you know.
0: Yeah, it's, there's yeah. Nazi life. <laughs> <laughs> I you know it's I have a really good buddy of mine who I love like and I know deep down to their core like we are. Um, we're, you know, we're brothers and we have each other's back and yet like we have conflicting political ideology or what have you. And, and I I finally said, and we would basically, we have a Thursday night bro down dinner. We get a little food, smoke a little hookah. Let me tell you, it's a time, Peter, if you ever (laughs) want to come And it's the, you know, the libs versus conservatives. And we have these debates and it's fun for the most part, but it gets maddening. And the other day I said, I can't do this with you anymore because we don't, respect each other's source material. Like you're citing sources that I think are mad and I'm citing sources that you don't agree with. So like, if we can't even agree on the evidence, then what what are we doing here? Right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think my biggest frustration, uh, like, you know, economic policy, fine. Like we can, you know, we can debate that because it's numbers mm-hmm. and you can interpret numbers in different ways. And you can think that You know, not taxing the rich is a great way to grow the economy, even though there's no data to support that. (laughs) Um, But you know, but like that's that to me is a less problematic uh, uh, point of departure than not respecting you know people's identities or uh, 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 ethnic background. Like you know, like I think that that's like that's where it's like when when that's the motivation behind like a political idea. You know, that's where I'm like, there's nothing to talk about here because I feel like you know respecting other humans fundamental humanity. Right. Again, one of those things that I thought like that's what we learned in kindergarten, you know, no hitting, no I, picking your nose. I think so too. Um, and I think that that's like part of the, like food is cool because we have to eat it all the time. You know, f- food is fun because going out and drinking until midnight is sometimes fun. But I think that like the goal for, and so we're going to we'll do dining coverage. We'll, we'll, write about products. We'll do recipes and all that stuff. But I think our, and I think everybody on the team is into it is like the idea, you are familiar with the the idea of open commensality? The term commensality. Commensality is coming together around the table and sharing ideas. And I remember when I was like, I was raised Catholic and never really worked for me because the whole idea of believing in transubstantiation uh, is, is a tough one for me. Sure. Um, and, uh, but I, when I, I remember reading this book, I went to a Catholic college actually for a year, six months infrequently, uh, before dropping out. And I read this book about the, uh, it was a historical autobiography of, or historical biography of Jesus. So it was distilling all of the written in influences to the Bible from the different translations under different rulers that had happened. Mm. And the the guy who read it said that the one, um, story that he felt like was, Original to the Bible was like the Last Supper, and that the important idea from the the life of uh, Christ was bringing you know whores and disciples and everybody at the same table to break bread. Right. And I was like, okay, I can't get down with this the whole theology of the religion, how it's administered, you know, like any of that. But I I like getting together with my friends around a table. So I I will tell my mom that like, mom, I'm not going to church anymore. I don't believe in the same God as you. But like. Here's the thing that we can do, and I think that that's like what food does, and what good food writing can do. Because it's like, in this first section, uh, Patricia Escarcega, who's one of our critics, writes about Mutiara, which is a Burmese cafe in Inglewood, I think. And I think with a review like that, I don't necessarily expect that you're gonna go down to Inglewood this weekend and like you know, but I think you can read it and you can see words and see the structure of a meal and hear about dishes and, and suddenly Burma, Myanmar, like is a little bit more three-dimensional, has a little bit more color to it. Maybe you're like, Oh, I'm going to be down that way anyways. Maybe we'll stop in that place. Right. And then suddenly you're in a room and at a table with like, you know, Burmese people and you know, is there a conversation? I don't know, but you've, you've, you've had that shared experience. And I think that that's how we consider each other, you know, like, is informed by that the communal experiences that we have. So I think that, like, good food writing is curious about other cultures, experiences, uh, ways of eating, and writes about them in a way that presents them, hopefully, to someone from outside the community like me in a way that deepens my knowledge of this one facet of their culture or this experience. And I think for, I hope that also, like, when, like, Burmese people in L.A. pick up the L.A. Times today, they're like, oh, cool, like... They wrote about, like, a Burmese cafe. Yeah, like, you know, and I think that that's, I think that representation in media frequently gets, like, batted around as a bad thing or, like, an affirmative action. And I think it's just, like, it's just, like, if you never see yourself in the mirror, like, that's an act of erasure. So, you know, we'll never be perfect. We will never reflect anything. There's, like, 70 restaurants drawn on the cover of this first issue which means that we left out I don't know 10,000 right. you know like I was I was looking at it last night and I'm like no we didn't leave oh my god we left off that but you know I'm friends with that guy and I didn't put his restaurant on them. you know like um so uh, media is never perfect but uh, I think that that's you know like the effort of doing it in a way
0: that's trying to be inclusive is there a part of you that's like compelled or feels you know there's like there's virtue to writing about the Burmese cafe in Inglewood. And would you rather that as opposed to like the super hip, expensive, delicious, new downtown spot that all the hipsters are going to? No,
1: I mean, the the, the facing page is Bill Addison's review of Hayato, which is like, I don't know, $250 a person. person there's seven seats you can't get in. It's a... a really? Yeah, it's a... a kaiseki style meal it's his favorite restaurant he's eaten here
0: what is that kaiseki style?
1: kaiseki is a style of cooking eating it's a it's a dining tradition that's from kyoto like, uh,
0: like amakasi it, it,
1: it is but okay so so kaiseki came out of its foundation hundreds of years ago was in tea ceremony foods and then kyoto is kind of like a rich beautiful old capital of japan right and kaiseki meals are very structured. There's like, there's a, there's a soup course, there's a simmered course, there's a fried course. Like, so there's like, you, you hit all these different styles of cooking and then it's very seasonal. Like I went to, uh, one of like the most classic kaiseki restaurants in Kyoto run by this guy. It's called Kikunoi. The chef's name is Murata-san. And the, all of the Flatware, everything on the table changes every season you know like it's incredibly seasonal yeah, it's yeah. like it's like the haiku of cooking um and it's extremely high-end and formal and like like elegant um so brandon hayato go is doing this restaurant called hayato and he's doing you know a, a lightly it's a more la version of kaisaki but it's still very formal and elegant and expensive and impossible to get in and at the row DTLA. Right. And I think that that's, I don't have, I'm interested in a good story. I'm interested in good food. I'm interested in bad food with a good story. Like I'm interested in all those things. Like, and I think that's the thing is it's not a review with the one thing. And Bill Addison and I disagree on this is I, I didn't want to put stars back on reviews. Cause I feel like, that's an impossible thing. Like, yeah, like how many stars can a taco truck have? You can't have as many as the two hundred fifty dollars Kaiseki restaurant, can it? Right. Are they different colored stars? Are they you know? And it's like suddenly like that's yeah, a, So it's so
0: Rotten Tomatoes f- for food. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: And I think that that's a a very common, you know, it's a very common practice. And I understand that it it it's good for debate and it's good for like social media. But to me that sort of, it, it reduces things down too much. I want people yeah. to have to read th- their way through, read about these things, learn about them a little bit, and then they can decide if they want to go or not.
0: Yeah, it's a distillation of like, I it, too, I, I think too it's that ADD culture of just a desire in which to just have a quick takeaway and good or bad. I mean, I, I had Maddie Matheson on the pod and we talked about Yelp and I just said, do you fucking hate Yelp? And he's like, he's like, I hate someone who, review something poorly because his steak didn't come out perfectly and he kind of like elucidated about why it's hard to get a steak the perfect temperature he's like and even if you're paying for a 30 or 40 dollars steak that's really not enough to get a perfect steak he's like you should probably be paying 100 bucks if you want the perfect steak and i don't you know i see that too where i'll go it's become so easy i'll go to a new city and like what's my resource i could do the deep dive research wise, but I'm, I'm lazy. And so it's just like quick hit that Yelp. But then I really start questioning like who the fuck took the time to like contribute to this for nothing other than the honor of being like a Yelp top contributor. Right.
1: I mean, it is, you know, I'll say that like Yelp has like some good functionality. Like you can save restaurants to a map in Yelp. So that's cool. But I don't, I just learned that the other night because I, like, do not look at Yelp. But Jonathan Gold used to, like, pull Yelp, you know, because, like, Yelp also, like, dominates SEO. If you search for a restaurant, like, it's going to be one of the top results. You know, they generally have information. But, yeah, like, I – and I think that's another reason, like, I like good professional restaurant criticism because people are being paid to consider – the restaurant in a context beyond a singular experience, mm. um, you know, and I think that that's, and I think that's important because I think it's one thing to be like, these guys fucked up my steak, I can't believe it, assholes, one star, one star, you know, and 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 I get it, you know, like we've all had that experience and been like, man, this place did not care about me and didn't do a good job, and I feel, you know, but then, it, it, on my side of the table, working in you know, media, I'm like, that's a business. People spend a lot of money to open it. A lot of people depend on it for their income. Like, are you considering, you know, the, the, the totality of the, the enterprise that you've just interacted with, which doesn't mean that restaurants can't be bad and can't get hit with a rolled up newspaper. Like, you know, any dog can be beaten, but you know, it's just like thinking about it before saying something. Uh, But that's not, you know, that's not the culture of like commenting on the internet, well, yeah, it's the, all fucked. The, the commenting on the internet that I love the most is recipe commenting, mm-hmm. where it's like, I made this brownie recipe, but I substitute cornmeal for the chocolate. They didn't come out well, zero stars. And I'm like, but, but you know, and it's like constantly <laughs> this thing right. like, I'm gluten-free and this recipe didn't, you know, this bread recipe didn't work for me. I don't understand why, you know, your cooking content can't, you know, and it's like, but there's instructions. It's like if you, if you, it, if Google Maps told you to take a right and you're like, I'm going to go straight and drive into this house, and then you got out of the car and you're like, Google Maps failed me, you know. Sure. So that's like my own like little pet Pet, pet pet recipe comment section I like to check in on.
0: I have such a fucked relationship, as, as most of us do, with comments and whatnot. And I have a pretty big social media presence, yes. so I get plenty. And, you know, it's amazing. It's a testament to the sort of human nature and that I can bypass 99 lovely ones and only focus on the one. I may
1: have been speaking to my therapist about that this morning. Yeah, like Solid. it's like, you know, it is. It, it is... It's, it, when you're fortunate enough to have people pay attention to your work, I think it is easy to become immune to good feelings and reactions, Mm. you know, and it's very easy to focus on someone who says something like pointless and uninformed and shitty, like, and, and those things can, can, you know, you really eat at you. I mean, I think, I don't know. The thing I try to think about was, uh, uh, Anthony Bourdain was, like, a friend. Like, we, you know, we'd hang out once a year or something. Like, And he was helpful in my career, wrote for me at my old magazine. And that guy never didn't stop and take a photo, didn't shake people. You know, like, he made time for everyone. Because he was legitimately thankful and felt blessed that he got to have the career that he did. Mm. That people were interested enough in his work and what he did that, like, he was like, okay, like, it's not, you know, I was a cook. I was 40. Now I'm this guy. Like, I have time for you. And I think that his, that with the way that he conducted himself around that is like inspirational because it's like, you can never take, I mean, it's funny for me to be saying this to you because you are exponentially uh, more successful uh, than I am. And you, you know, uh, you've had a crazy, I don't know about that. you've had a crazy <laughs> and, and, and cool career, but, um, but yeah, it's like just remembering that like, you know, the fact that you get to do what you do, I get to do what I do are like very lucky positions in life and always, very. you know, and, and like, and, and the other thing is an old mentor of mine when I started writing for the New York times a long time ago, you know, I was like 26, I'm writing restaurant reviews. I'm like, really like I dropped out of college. I didn't really have that much experience. And, you know, suddenly I'm at the New York times and I you know, felt like an imposter, but I was doing like doing my best work. And then you know, people would get on the internet and be like, you know, this fucking guy or whatever and, and it would bother me and I and I tell my, my friend and he's like, If people aren't mad, people aren't paying attention. Yes. And and I felt like that's been comforting. It's like, you know.
0: Yeah. I think that that's that's true to such a deep extent and also i found for me so many times it'll so many times the answer to any troll is who hurt you <laughs> like, <laughs> you know like where in your childhood are right. you using this opportunity to take it all out on me right. and then i've even had a, i've had times where I, i'll respond in a moment of complete defeat yep. and they'll say hey man big fan just wanted to get a response cuz they know like right. that that's the the shining light right. of what you're going to notice right I Do you find, you know what I find fascinating about Bourdain and, and it was revealed to me, I, I'm such a fan, especially in the final season of his show where half the episodes he wrote and narrated and then the other half, you know, other people wrote and narrated. To me, like, it seemed like his greatest gift was his writing.
1: Oh, I mean, he was an, he was an incredible writer and he was incredibly fast. Like, I remember the last new issue of content we did for Lucky Peach was the suburbs issue and you know, John Cheever, you know, wrote like some definitive like suburb fiction in the whatever 50s or 60s. I knew Tony liked it and I knew like, I'm like, he'll have some smart take on this. Um, so I wrote to him like, can you do something on Cheever for the suburbs issue of Lucky Peach? And you know, I get an email back in like about a minute. He's like, yep. And then three hours later he turned in his piece. And he had gone back to like an obscure Cheever story that I had never heard of before, and created him and taken like the narrative of the story and made it a metaphor for the end of my relationship with Dave Chang and the end of Lucky Peach in like three hours. And it was like, you know, like moved a couple periods around, but it was ready to go. Um, Jesus. So he was he was incredibly fast. He was an incredibly smart guy, and and yeah, his writing. I mean, I think that. His VO, like, I think, you you know, you think, like, he's this strapping, tall, cool guy, smoking cigarettes, you know, going around the world. But, like, it wasn't... His voice was great for VO, but it was the writing of his VO, you know, the VO. And the fact that he understood, like, the cadence to write in, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think that that's the thing, the length of his sentences. Like, when you read his writing, it sounds like Tony talking, you know. It's rhythmic, yeah. And, And it's a really like that's the definition of voice in writing which is a is a lifelong pursuit of any writer and i think tony you know i mean the thing is tony wrote 3 crime novels before he ever started writing about food wow and so he he had been a writer for a long time just out of the public eye and then you know he kind of like showed up on everybody's doorstep when he wrote that thing about not eating muscles for the new yorker and that was like Oh my god, this cook can write like that. And it's like, no, he was a writer and a serious thinker and reader and, you know, consumer of literature and film for his whole life. We just didn't meet him until he was at a certain age when he'd been working at it for a while. Right. But he was also just gifted. Like it's not it is not easy to write in a way that feels that natural and is also, you know, precise and artful.
0: I'm sure you have experience with this too, which is that now I'm surrounded by so many people that feel like I'm charming. I like food. Like I'll just do what Bourdain did. Like I'll pitch a show where I go and travel and eat. Cause that's like everyone's secret dream anyway. Yes. Right. So you get paid to do that. And it was funny, Maddie and I talked about this, like anyone that thinks they are ever going to even remotely fill his shoes, which is impossible, but like, just do like, I'm like, good luck. Like you, cuz to me like that was the show was this innate ability for him to like wrap it up in this beautiful package like that was my favorite part of anything he did from travel channel to CNN was was the voiceover his narration
1: yeah i mean i think you know he worked with a really great set of producers and editors and i think that that's another facet that you know in production people are like i'm cute mm. i like to eat send me to go eat sushi in tokyo like there's so much more that goes into the pre-production, into oh my the God. scouting, into shooting things in the right way, into conducting yourself in the restaurant in the right way so that you get the intimacy that you need, you know, and then, and then, yeah, and then in the editing and the laying the thought over the top that, that gives it a profundity that, you know, doesn't come with the fact that you just ate a cheeseburger. You know, you got to write, you got to write yeah. in the, the, the reason that's an idea that we should care about. And I think that, So, you know, I think think that's the thing that's often not thought about in media is that, like, if there's a guy and the guy's the star... And, like, Tony was gifted. Tony drove it. Tony inspired everyone. Tony gave them the permission to be excellent and be weird and push boundaries a thousand percent. But you still need a team that can take that direction and and follow you, you know? And I think that that's, like, in my experience with television... It's 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 harder to do it well than anyone thinks it is.
0: Oh yeah, and the uh, first of all, warning to anyone who who's looking to pitch um a show like that. um It's the most overused pitch model there is right now. For like, I just want to you know, I'm gonna be like a young Bourdain or female Bourdain or whatever. But also, like, my buddies the other day were trying to pitch me the idea of me doing some sort of food type thing and. They said something to the effect of like, you know, it'll be like Hot Ones, you know? So you will like, you know, you're funny and and charming and you'll just like sit with people and talk and eat. And I'm like, you're missing it. Like the brilliance of Hot Ones is that they're eating fucking the most insane hot sauce. I said, that's the crux.
1: And I think the brilliance of Hot Ones is that is the dumbest idea you ever could have come up with. You never could have sold that in a room at Netflix. Right. But they fully committed to and believed in it. And it became a serious thing. You yes. know, and it's like, you know, that, like, I want to be on TV and eat food is not the same thing as, like, I want to get people to eat really hot wings. I'll eat hot wings. I want to live this brand. This is my thing. This is all I can do. Like, right. this is this is my idea. <laughs> like, you know, like, that, that total commitment to the bit is, like, is the reason that, and, you know, and then it snowballs. So, but it's like, you would never... Like if you went to your agent, I'm like, I want to get celebrities to eat hot wings with me. They'd be like,
0: Cool, man, I'm gonna call you in a few weeks. Yeah, you sounds know? great. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll knock it around and <laughs> yeah. then never call <laughs> you back.
1: Exactly.
0: Do you do you have any trouble getting into any restaurant ever? I feel like you gotta have the golden pass.
1: Uh, I have less trouble getting into restaurants than I'd like to admit to.
0: And you deserve it. No, I mean, it's not,
1: you know, but I also, um, I have an inability, it may be congenital, to make restaurant reservations. Mm. Like, I don't plan anything. Yeah. So, there's lots, yeah. I just, so, and I like to go to places that you can just walk into. Like, that's generally a restaurant that that I'm going to go to is going to be a restaurant that you can walk into. But then again, since I've, you know, being out in L.A., I've needed to go to, you know, like Vespertine or something like that. Like I can't, I need to know the range of restaurants here. Um, I mean, luckily for years I would come out and just get in Jonathan Gold's truck and go everywhere with him. And we would eat like, he was always proving to me that LA was a better eating city than New York. So he was always taking me to places that he liked. We went to some places he was going to review. I remember on one of my last trips out with him, you know, he just published the one-on-one best restaurants list and, Providence was at the top of it, right? And I'm like, you know, spa goes up in the top ten somewhere, and I'm like, like you don't actually like Providence. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you never take me there, like we've never gone there, like, and that's like
0: three hundred, yeah, it's super expensive, like really
1: precise, you know, and and he, you know, kind of like, you know, gives me the long look, and like drive off to whatever we're eating, and then the next night, you know, I get in the truck, I'm like, where are we going to dinner? He's like, Providence. Yeah, and we went and had an exceptional meal at, Prov- you know, and he just, there was no discussion about it. It was just like, okay, shit, Bert, I'll take you to Providence, and you'll see that, you know, it's really an important, special, fun, you know, like right. that. What he's doing there, and I think that that was, and then we went to Spago the next night in, in a, you know, continued act of demonstration, and because his son Leon loves the, the, there's a cheesy potato preparation. I'm forgetting the French name of there, but like Leon loves that. So me and Leon and Jonathan went to Spago. It was great because, so we pull up and Jonathan's going to valet his truck and Leon and I get out and walk into the restaurant. And, you know, I look mildly homeless all the time. And Leon is like, I don't know, fourteen fifteen 15, wearing a t shirt, has a big book in his hand. And we walk up to the host stand and I'm like, you know, I have a reservation for green because the name Jonathan always reserved under. And, they're like looking at us and they're like, what are we going to do with these two people? Right. Like, where can we hide them? Like, is there a room closet we could feed them in? And then Jonathan walked in behind us and like, I swear to God, the general manager appeared out of the floor, just, you know, appeared like out of a cloud of smoke and was like, you know, Mr. Gold. Like, you know, Oh yeah. Come. It's yeah. like the
0: Mashiach. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, this is like, <laughs> I mean, I imagine Jonathan and any great, you know, someone who becomes so well known in a certain space, like, he would, unless he was going to perhaps a Burmese cafe in Inglewood, like there, he couldn't go anywhere with any sort of anonymity, right?
1: No, and he relinquished it at a certain point, And he also, you know, he was a very distinctive looking person. Yes. And he had been a presence suspenders. in... Suspenders. Suspenders, yeah. like big guy, like kind of they scraggly do. reddish, blondish hair. Kind of bald. Um, yeah, a like little. a little bit. And like and just like a, an imposing, like... like not imposing. I mean, he was just like, he was a larger than life presence and, and he had also created such an impression and and connection in Los Angeles that people knew him all over the place. I mean, you you know, you can't go eat at a good restaurant in the San Gabriel Valley without seeing the plaques of like Jonathan, 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 you know, on the wall. All the best Asian spots. Yeah. I mean, he just really, then I mean, I, 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 it was so sad to lose him last year. Um, And, And he's the reason i'm here you know he wanted me to come do this for years and i thought he was joking i thought he just wanted to hang out more and me not to be mean to him about turning in his copy super Uh. late all the time um so i was like yeah 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 um but i thought that the 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 show of love that the city put on in his passing like like i definitely cried when i saw the picture of like his silhouette on the santa monica you know uh ferris wheel on the pier, you know, and just like the way that the city turned out.
0: He has like a mural in downtown. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And like, it was just like, you know, they put all the municipal buildings, put gold lights on for a night, you know, there was just like a really, you know, and I think it was fitting because I think the thing that Jonathan did was explain Los Angeles to itself. Right. You know, he, he, you know, he, he said, these are your neighbors. And I think that that, like, I don't, I don't feel comfortable like writing his legacy. He's another person who's, shoes will never be filled. Mm. Um, But I do feel like he demonstrated a great way to make food journalism relevant to many communities, you know, uh, on top of the incredibly artful and often very funny writing, you know, that that he delivered that message in. And I think that that's like, you know, the guiding voice of like what we're going to try to do. We're never going to do it as well as Jonathan did it, but we're going to try to take that, idea that, you know, you don't stay in your neighborhood, you drive everywhere, you're curious about everything, you want to become expert in everything, because you want to be able to sit down at the table with somebody else and know, oh, yeah, we're gonna get the tea leaf salad, we're at a Burmese cafe, like, that's the thing we get here, you know, and once you have that, once you can show up and not be like, what the hell is this, then you have that chance of connecting across a meal.
0: Do you... Yeah. I mean, I think it, I'm interested to know, so you take away sort of the the food and and all the incredibly cool aspects. And then it comes down to, it's boiled down to like, you work for this massive newspaper and you've been a writer and, and for so many of these huge sort of organizations. So what's like the day-to-day look like? Like you mentioned that you'd give Jonathan a hard time if he would be, you know, submitting late. Like, I imagine maybe it's not like the A section where we're like, we have to get this up in six hours. But, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, you got fucking, you work for a newspaper, you got deadlines, baby.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a hustle. Um, I have a really exceptional deputy editor named Andrea Chang who's been here for, I think, eight years. She was in business, she was in real estate, and she's come to food, she came to write. Mm. And it was finally like, all right, I'm going to stop editing and I'm going to get to write stories. And then when I took on the editor job, my boss was like, "You need Andrea to be your deputy," and she.
0: And what does that mean to be the deputy? Like, she's your.
1: She's like ostensibly, and even though I'm allergic to corporate hierarchy, like <laughs> she's the number two person at this section So, Got it. like, I'm the sheriff, and she's the deputy. I think would be like the uh, you know the 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 linguistic roots of of that
0: title. And then who's above her? The editor of the whole paper.
1: So then above above I report then to uh, Kimi Yoshino, who's like. Senior Deputy Managing Editor. So many titles. Yeah, and then uh, above Kimmy is uh, Sewell Chan and Norm Perlstein, who Got are it. the... the Managing? Yeah, the, the executive, I don't know, some yeah. adjective plus editor. It's but... like
0: in showbiz where it's like executive producer, associate producer. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Right. And, and, and so, but Andrea is inc- incredibly, like, she's she's organized, she's focused, she understands the processes of the paper in a way that I'm still learning. Mm. And I think we're both, you know, so we, we, we do our best to make the trains run on time. We want to get stuff in early. We want to, you know, but it's, I mean, there's some whip cracking that goes on with it, but it's also in the service of making the thing. And I've been making, you know, writing is different when you're writing, you know, you're like, you can play the tiny violin of the the creative difficulty that you're having getting your important thoughts onto the paper. Um, from an editing and production standpoint, you know, like it's also like making sure there's enough stuff in the hopper so that when a writer is having a hard time finishing the piece, I don't have to like scramble. Or- yeah, like because I I definitely there was one time when I was writing for the New York Times where I I I was always late on deadline. Like that was definitely my What's style. What's
0: late look like? A day? A couple hours? Oh, weeks? I mean.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've, I've done all, all of the above, you know, as late as, but always, it was almost always as late as possible, but still enough time to get it in and get done and yeah. go through and edit. Jonathan would literally turn in reviews 15 minutes before they needed to be sent to the printer, which I think like wore down Amy Scattergood, who's a staff writer at our section, but was his editor, uh, when he was, when he was still here. Um, But yeah, like I've, I, 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 one time I, I, I failed a deadline for my friend who was the travel editor. And I remember I was in San Francisco doing something and he called me up and yelled at me on the phone and I felt terrible. And I'm like, I don't ever want to, like, if if you're on my staff, you need to, you know, and you have a weekly column, you need to get it in. Um, (laughs) Right. But like for other people who, you know, are writing for the section, like, I want to make sure that I have other stuff in the hopper, I have other things in process so that there's enough time to work on things. Cause I think that, the way I like to edit is a little bit less newspaper-y and a little bit more magaziney. I, you know, I don't necessarily need to do one pass on something, push print, get it up in the paper. Like I might want to go back and forth a couple times. I might want to consider a couple other angles. Like for anything that's not newsy, I want to treat it more like a, you know, an essay that can be worked on rather than like a news product we need to put up now.
0: Is there ever breaking food news? Sure. Yeah. I
1: mean, like you know, Mario Batali getting pushed out of or leaving his restaurant group you know right. um there's you know i mean it's like you know i think a lot of breaking news is like it bleeds it leads you know it's uh bad things happening yeah. are, are are generally breaking news um, um you know yeah your food recalls you know your any any time there's you know an unsuspected you know <laughs> right there's really like happy breaking food news.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's just like this is the most incredible Amasubi. Like right, exactly. let's get it on the front page. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, and now you have this like incredible, you know, new food section in the LA Times. Yeah. You're sort of the driving force behind and and so you put it out and it was it went out in yesterday's paper or No, no this is today. Wow. So, so like
1: got to go to the printing press, watch it come off last night.
0: And was, how 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 long do you get to ride that good feeling of like, oh my God, look at this work until the dread of like, we got to do it next week comes in.
1: When we're done, I got to go have a meeting, look at art and figure, you know, and figure out what happens next week and the week after that and the week after, you know. and never stops. And and like actually open this thing up with a pen and be like, you know, we got this wrong. We got, you know, not like the facts are all correct. um, But, you know, like let's change this design element. Let's work on this. How is the, you know, what other color ranges can we look at? So like that's, but that's the, you know, I mean, the fun of making a newspaper is you make it every day, yeah. So,
0: um, and you you had mentioned before how you and Dave Chang parted ways. Can we talk about Dave a little, or you rather, whatever sure. you want?
1: Uh, is, I mean,
0: I mean, because he I'm, I'm just fascinated by his, you know. I know I, I listened to a podcast that you were interviewed on, and sort of like how you started reviewing his restaurants early on, and that's sort of how you guys were introduced, but. You know, he's just such a specific figure. And, like, I, I'm fascinated by I, – I have a buddy. I don't know if you know him, James Ransone. He's an actor. He's yeah, from the, the Wire. Yeah, yeah. And he's good buddies with Dave. And he just said – and I, I remember asking about him early on. And he said he's like any of these brilliant guys. Like, he's completely specific with his vision, but don't get in the way of it. But,
1: y- yeah. I mean, he – Dave's a super smart guy. He's a really driven, you know, person. Um, we had a creative partnership that, for a lot of years, worked until it didn't. You sure. know, and I think it was, you know, and I don't. I mean, we literally haven't spoken in what is it? April. It'll be two months, mu- two years next month. Um, so I don't know what he's up to now. Um, yeah. I think he just had a kid. Um, and, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we made some good things together. You know, we did the, his first cookbook or his cookbook. Um, and and then we did Lucky Peach. And then we did uh, Mind of a Chef. And, you know, did the Ugly Delicious show. And so we made things. Yeah. Um, but it ultimately, I think partnership is... Difficult. I think it's more difficult for some people than others. And I think that it just stopped working for him at a certain point.
0: Yeah. I, no, I get that. It's so, it's so unfortunate that everything in life is so cyclical, right? Like that has, cause I'm, I'm of the school of like, if it's working, baby, right, let right. fucking ride this thing.
1: Right. But it goes back but. to that conversation you were having, uh, talking about with your friend earlier. It's like, if we can't agree on the facts of what's working, right? it makes it hard for us to stay in the same boat. Fair. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think. I mean, there there are difficult parts of it because, you know, I had to lay off a bunch of people and stop making a thing I liked making. Right. Um, but at the same time, if, if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be here doing this. And, you know, I guess it that's the works. other thing is that, like, for whatever endings or, you know, sadness we encounter along the way, like remembering that there's, like, there's going to be another chance or another thing or another experience down the line is like, is, is the, the way to look forward.
0: Um, Oh yeah. And, and for anyone who's not, uh, you know, as familiar with the magazine, it was sort of like the counterculture sort of answer to, to traditional food magazines. Just, I mean, it almost felt like a zine. Yeah. I know?
1: mean, that was the aesthetic kind of inspiration. It was, you know, we started it with, uh, this guy Chris Yang, who was at McSweeney's at the time, like, uh, you know, we were, I was younger, significantly and angrier, um, probably not that significantly less angry. But does now, that make
0: you writing better being angry? No, no,
1: no. I mean, I, you know, I had a chip on my shoulder. I didn't understand why I couldn't publish five thousand word stories. You know, I didn't understand why I couldn't. You know write drunk. I didn't understand why all the pages couldn't be different colors. I didn't understand why, you know, and, and so Lucky Peach was a place to explore that. Um, And it just, it, and it found an audience and it, and it became a place that, you know, I got to work with David Simon from the wire, which was super exciting. You he just wrote for us, you know, Bourdain wrote for us and we made, it was really long, really dense, really literary. And then it changed over time, you know, and it evolved as we all, you know, got that out of our system. And it's, you know, I remember at one point it was like, okay, we know how to make that thing. Can we make a food magazine that looks like a food magazine? And that's the point at which you're like, man, making Bon Appetit must be really hard because, like, you know, it's, you know, and it, and it was a great learning experience. So, yeah, we did 24 issues over the course of six or seven years. It was a quarterly. Right. And, uh, and, and now it's, you know, I don't know. Yeah. At your local library on eBay.
0: I mean... Um, Oh, the, first of all, have you watched Bon Appetit's YouTube channel? Yes. It's fucking unbelievable. It's, yes. They crush it. My wife, she's obsessed. Um, But there, there is sort of a romanticism in writing too of like, do you know, the Bukowskis and the yeah. Hunter S. Thompson's of like, I want to be Gonzo. Man. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right? I mean, and that was, that was definitely my answer. I think, you know, all of us to a certain degree, different elements was, was that why I wanted that, that feeling of, you know, like when he pours the ether on the floor of the car driving to Vegas, you know, Hunter yeah. S. Thompson, or, you know, I mean, I still feel like, you know, find what you love and do it till you kill you. That Bukowski quote is is inf- informative in in my life and how I like to approach it. Um, and, then, and then, you know, we became a place where people saw that they could do long form, they could get weird, they could get good editing, they could get good art with their stories, you know, ended up having a lot of people win awards writing for us. And that was a, a great thing to create and 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 get to shepherd along um but i think ultimately it just didn't align with what where dave was at at that time in his life you know he was like raising money and growing his restaurant group and i think really focused on like right. m- multiplying success and you know he was like why aren't you buzzfeed and i'm like cuz we're lucky we each you know and yeah. and at a certain point that it just wasn't our visions were no longer aligned on what to do going forward right um so you know
0: do you, my, I think my favorite uh, watching you, and uh, I, I think it was on uh, mind of a chef. Was I, I think it was the first the ramen episode where you're eating that tankatsu ramen, the, the uh, the dip where you dip it in,
1: right? The no, sauce. it's uh, is a fried pork cutlet, but oh. now it's uh, replaced the Japanese word for
0: to come. Uh, Sukamen. Sukamen, yeah. Or Sukamen.
1: Sukamen, yeah, sukemen. Then, yeah, Sukamen. Yeah. Sukemen. yeah. Um, my colleagues from the LA Times were just in uh, Tokyo, and they they went to Rakarincha. Or, is that Rakarincha? I think that's Rakarincha. Yeah, they went there and, and had that ramen.
0: That looks like the most delicious shit ever.
1: so fantastic.
0: You I mean, got the extra noodles.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was like, that was some of my favorite. Yeah, I mean, I remember, and it's also weird, and I'm... I, imagine you've probably had the experience of eating on camera well i'm wildly uncomfortable on camera i don't think you have that problem <laughs> um but like reacting to food on camera is not th- the most natural human no. thing to do and uh and i think that i mean i haven't watched that show almost ever uh but i think that like i remember being so transported by that bowl of noodles that I forgot that I was on camera and I didn't like seeing pictures of myself you know and I was just like really enjoying eating it so
0: i mean it's an insane you know i like in in la there's the mitsua yeah. asian market that has a pretty strong bowl and but yeah i mean that kicks your ass on like a flavor profile that i've never quite experienced when you have a great bowl of ramen yeah have you ever I, and I only have, like, two more questions. Have you ever uh, eaten at Jiro's uh, rep- restaurant in Tokyo? Uh,
1: at The the sushi chef Jiro? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I never have. It was closed one time I was there, and then the next time I was in town, like, mainly eating grilled food. So I haven't done it.
0: But that's, like, I mean, to your point of, like, ten, you know, less than 10 seats, yeah. getting taken through this journey of yes. flavor. And sushi especially, right? Because it would just be a piece
1: Right. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, Jiro, I think is like 27 minutes mm. and like, it's a, it's a very set and fixed menu. Um, I have gone to some super high end, like little, like sushi temples in, uh, in both Hokkaido and, 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 in Tokyo. And, and I love that. Like I would, if, if I could eat like, do you know Shunji over on the West side here?
0: Yeah. 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 On um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like that's my spot. Like if I could just like, roll out of work and go hit Shinji every night. Like I would absolutely do that. I mean I would I would live in a cardboard box. But you know
0: <laughs> Can uh, you can you enjoy a cheesecake factory? With all it, your knowledge? It
1: recently <laughs> came to light uh with my staff that I have never been to a cheesecake factory oh, Peter, and now so they sorry. really want to address it. We did run a wonderful series of haikus about the cheesecake factory in the suburbs issue of Lucky Peach, but um
0: What about a PF Chang's perhaps? Never Even a, ma-
1: Chang's. a macaroni grill. Never macaroni grilled. Nothing is no, there amazing. I mean, I, I, mean I well, I grew I mean, I grew up not really eating in restaurants. We went to a diner near my house. We ate at McDonald's a lot and I grew up in Chicago, so like yeah. I have like my beef stand, Johnny's beef on North avenue and elmwood and then you know have my hot dog spots and like that was what i ate i didn't eat a wide range of foods like when i moved to new york i didn't eat fish or mushrooms or cheese right. and uh and but there weren't none of those chains existed where i lived back in the day um you know like we would go to tgi fridays and like that was like where i took my now wife on our first date like when i picked the location amazing some potato skins and some cherry coke when we were 16 you know what i'm saying could you Getting do that now I you, or you just would choose not to. I'm. I mean, I'm nostalgic for potato skins, um, and and also like I have little kids now, so I go to Shake Shack with them, right. you know, or like go to places where they can eat some sort of fried chicken finger product or whatever the hell. Uh, so I'm I'm not above it, but like I have a place outside of the city, and the best place to eat near it is like a little Mexican grocery store and deli that has like you know great tacos and kind of like very simple. Mexico, but yeah, so I'm like, especially after reading Michael, no, not Michael Pollins, uh Fast Food Nation, reading that book put me off of eating fast food from a, a labor issue. Mm. Like like people in that food chain are being treated poorly. So putting money into that food chain is not treating your fellow man well. <laughs> then I wrote, you know, then I got that column uh, at the New York Times for four years and I um, wrote about you know, small mom and pop restaurants around New York. And that became my passion and far more interesting to me than like, you know, I hustled, like I live in Manhattan. Like there's not, there's no need to go to, like if I lived in the suburbs, I imagine I would have been to a cheesecake factory right now, but I live in the center of an Island that's full of like,
0: Lots Delicious of like, cool options. Yeah, you're not going to make a pilgrimage to Times Square to go to the Red Lobster.
1: Right. Like The other thing is like I've never been to La Bernadette. Like, there's, there's lots of fancy places I haven't been to either. Danielle? Yeah, I've been to Danielle a lot.
0: Uh, <laughs> no need <yeah>. to show <laughs> off. <laughs> um, okay, my last question, and I so appreciate your time. Um, I would something ask everyone on the pod. What are your one or two Peter Meehan commandments, truths that you have discovered that you would want to impress upon someone else? And you could take your time.
1: Truth. I have discovered that I would impress upon someone else.
0: I really want like some breaking news to come down and see people like running down the hall. Right. All the president's men style. Like Dustin Hoffman Stop the presses. Yeah. Did um, that happen? No. I,
1: well, I Actually, I went to the printing press last night and I saw the red button. Like there is a stop the presses button. Wow. Because you might need to stop the presses, I guess. I imagine it's more like if someone falls into the press than like for news reasons. But, sure. Uh, <laughs> but we can imagine that scenario. Um... I don't know, I guess the 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 two thing the two things I've been thinking about a lot lately are that Bukowski quote find what you love and do it t- till it kills you yeah. and I've felt like that is both a good you know needlepoint sampler inspiration type quote it's also a good way to live if you're trying to get something done, but it's not super sustainable. And Mm -hmm. I think like wrestling with that idea that if you want to do something, you need to fight for it. You need to live it. You need to breathe it. You need to not sleep for it. You need to like, is something I've done at different periods of my life. And I'm like, is this going to work out for me or am I going to end up like Bukowski? Um, Right. And I think the other thing, the other phrase thought thing that I've, found myself saying a lot over the years is it seemed like a good idea at the time, um, which is, I think creatively important to me because I think, you know, like we were talking about like hot ones, Mm. it could have been a failure, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. Instead, it's a huge success because it seemed like a good idea at the time. Like, I think that like, if you have an idea or a feeling or an inspiration you know a desire to do something and it's and it's and it's a it's there and it's like it, it's not it's not i want to be that i want that thing that someone else has i want to make something that looks like something i like i want to you know n- not 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 coveting others shit but saying like there's a thing inside of me that like i want to see done mm. like you follow it doesn't mean it works doesn't mean it gets done doesn't mean It doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean it's not a huge success. It just means that, like, when you identify, like, that spark in the creative process that, like, you chase it. And afterwards, like, you will have done it because it seemed like a good idea at the time.
0: Love it. My man. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. This was great. This was really fun.
0: Oh, man. That was it. That was Peter Meehan. How about that, huh? So great. What a guy, man. I really like that guy. I'm so so glad he uh he allowed me to do that. Guys, thank you for listening. Um I really appreciate it. I appreciate the love I get for this podcast. And I you know, it's just one of my favorite things that I get to do. And I try to say off the internet because people are mean. And uh, I am not impervious to a mean comment. And uh, I'll tell you what I am impervious to. A thousand nice ones. <laughs> because I do, man. I get so many nice comments. And, and that's not like to be braggadocious. It's just me saying like, man, I'm so lucky. And then, of course, my psyche, my mind can only focus in on like the one or two trolls. You know, it's funny. I <laughs> The other day... I'm going to talk a little bit in this outro, so feel free to turn this shit off. And I don't know, what what else are you going to listen to? Um, the other day, uh, President Obama had tweeted something out. And while I try not to be overtly political in anything I do, I, I just felt compelled, and I don't know why, to write him on Twitter. In a, you know, I replied to his tweet. Not even a tweet that would live on my main page, but a, a reply, no less. I said, uh, miss you, Prez. Miss ya. Just a little love, just a little love for a former president who like him or not like him. He was the president of the fucking United States of America. He was our, everyone's president. Tea Party, hardcore liberal, Antifa, fucking alt-right. I don't care if you were a citizen of the United States of America from 2008 to 2016, he was your god, well, January 2017, he was your goddamn president too. Um but anyway I uh I wrote him that and somebody fucking came after me some you know cuck <laughs> just some very easily triggered angry fuck who like completely obliterated my character and I'm like are you this triggered like have your views baby boy be a you know right wing spouting I hate everything left dude bless you But did I trigger you because I just wrote a bit of appreciation for a former president? That's it. I didn't go after your guy. I didn't say, man, I wish you were back in the White House, President Obama, because we've got this orange bloat bag as a president now who brings shame to us on a daily basis. I didn't say this. I just said miss your press, and this guy felt compelled to fucking attack me. And here I am mentioning him on my podcast, so I guess he's still winning. But nevertheless, I just find these easily triggered cucks um, represent everything that's wrong with um, everyone having a voice on the internet. Because not everyone should. (laughs) I digress. Uh, Guys, have a great week. Sorry about this lengthy outro. Love you. Take care. God bless. Goodbye.